Hey everyone, how are we doing today? Good, good. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to be with all of you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've got some people coming down the aisles right now that would love to get a copy into your hand. All you have to do is raise your hand and I'll pass that over to you. And once you've got that out, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 is where we're going to be this morning. When I was in uh, first grade, uh, my, my teacher, her name was Mrs. Lyons, she would start off every week uh, by writing uh, 10 words on the chalkboard, and then those words that she wrote would be our spelling words for the week, and we as students, we would copy those words down at our at our desks, and, and I can't remember if it was progressive throughout the year or if it happened all of a sudden, but, but something strange happened to me um, as she would write those words on the chalkboard. Before she would write the word down, I would whisper under my breath the word she was going to write, and she would write it down. So I'd whisper under my breath, apple, and she'd write, apple. I'd whisper under my breath, pencil, and she would write, pencil, isn't that crazy? <laughs> It's crazy because it's not true. That didn't happen. <laughs> you didn't really believe that, did you? I know you're better than that. You are. Um, no, um, not only could I not uh, uh, predict the word that she was going to write, I, I couldn't see it either. I had trouble seeing it. And so I remember she would write the words on the, on the chalkboard, and I would be leaning over my desk, and I'd be squinting my eyes trying to see the word, but I just couldn't see it. And she could see that I was struggling to see the word. And so she moved me to the front of the class, and I still couldn't see the words that well. So she told my parents, and my parents then took me to the eye doctor, where the eye doctor then proceeded to give first grade Ryan his first pair of glasses, and he looked like this. <laughs> Yeah, what a dork, right? <laughs> uh, I took my uh, fashion inspiration from a uh, cultural icon at the time, uh, George Costanza <laughs> from Seinfeld. The exact same glasses. Every kid in the 90s wanted to look just like George Costanza. Um, I was not thrilled that I had to wear glasses in first grade. I'd take them off all the time. I'd lose them. My parents would get so frustrated, but in retrospect, I am so grateful for corrective lenses because without them, I, I would not be able to function at all. So like if perfect vision is, is 20-20, my, my eyesight is 2,700. And I'm not just saying like that to pull out like a big number out of thin air, like that's literally what my vision is. And so what that means is for, if, I'm like, if I'm standing 20 feet away from something and someone with perfect vision is standing 700 we, uh, feet away from the thing, it's, we see the same thing, which is to say that we don't see anything at that point. Um, you know those eye charts where it has like the letters on it and whatnot? Like this is what it looks like for someone who has perfect vision. This is what it looks like for someone who has negative four. Mine's twice as bad as that. It's, it's a negative 8.25. Okay? I, I, I wouldn't be able to function without the contact lenses I wear, without my glasses that are at home. My glasses are like Coke bottles, literally. Like that is what they look like. Um, and the reason I emphasize this and, and talk so much about this is I want to stress the importance of seeing clearly. If I wasn't able to see clearly, I wouldn't be able to do basic things in life, like, like read and write and drive my car and walk down the hallway without bumping into everything. 
And in a similar way, if we don't see clearly spiritually, then we're going to struggle to do basic things in life like honor God and obey him and love other people well, sacrificially, selflessly, and be generous. And when we're unable to do those things well, the, the, the natural byproduct is chaos. When we don't see clearly spiritually, uh, we reap chaos in our lives. And oftentimes we want to blame that chaos in our lives on the stupidity of other people. We want to blame that chaos in our lives on, on the craziness of life. But listen, the chaos in life is, is almost always rooted in our inability to see clearly spiritually. And so we're in the second week of this new series in the book of Hebrews titled Fight for Focus. And what we're going to see today and what we're going to see in the coming weeks and what we're going to see unfold is, is, is the Holy Spirit is, is communicating through this book, through Hebrews, the importance of, of seeing clearly. Seeing clearly. And God isn't going to try to do this by making sure we've got airtight theology or impeccable biblical literacy. You see, when God moved toward us in love to reveal himself most clearly to us, he didn't give us volumes of systematic theology. He didn't give us a class on biblical hermeneutics. Now listen, good theology and, and understanding God's word is important, but when God moved toward us in love to reveal himself most clearly to us, what did he do? Well, let's read Hebrews 1 again. Hebrews 1, verse 1. This is what we read last week. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, seeing clearly spiritually is about seeing Jesus Christ rightly. It's about seeing him rightly. And if we want to live life well, and if we want to avoid the chaos of life, then we need to see Jesus clearly. In fact, here's our big idea this morning. It's this. My fight for focus hinges on how I see Jesus. My fight for focus in this life hinges on how I see Jesus. You see, the, the, the primary problem that the writer of Hebrews was facing with the audience that he was writing to was they weren't seeing Jesus clearly. They were losing their focus. They were seeing Jesus incorrectly. And so what he is doing in this chapter and in the rest of the book of Hebrews is he's trying to uh, paint the clearest possible picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, your focus in life, my focus in life, where you place your attention and your energy and your desire and where you seek satisfaction and joy and contentment from in this life hinges on seeing Jesus clearly. Now, you might say you see him clearly. You might say that, that, that this Jesus is God, that he's the son of God. You might say that he's the Lord and savior of your life. You might stand and you might sing loudly the words that were on the screen, the truths and the realities about Jesus Christ. But there's a big difference between what you say you believe about who this Jesus is and, and what you really believe deep down in your heart often manifested through the way you behave and your desires, what you do and what you want. 
And correcting all of that starts with, with seeing Jesus clearly. And here in these verses that we're going to look at, verses four through 14, we have this beautiful, clear picture of, of who Jesus is. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And, and would the Holy Spirit even now begin to work through this text as we hear it? And, and, and would he realign our focus and our vision? And would he help us now see Jesus clearly? Let's start at verse three, at the word after. After making purification for sins, he, that's Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Again, this entire passage is about explaining and showing that Jesus is amazing and painting this picture of who he really is. And I, and I want us to see in these three verses and in the coming verses that we'll read, three realities, three truths about Jesus that we must see in order to see Jesus clearly. And here's the first one. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in worship because he has the greatest name. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in worship because he has the greatest name. A clear vision and understanding of this Jesus must include this acknowledgement that Jesus is worthy of, of all praise, adulation, glory, uh, because his nature his character, who he is, he is worthy of all of that, him and him alone, more than any one or anything. And we see that clearly in these texts, but maybe as you're looking at your Bibles right now, you can go ahead and look at that first chapter. Do you notice how it's different? Do you notice how there's like more spaces and like the indentation is kind of weird and like what's going on here? Well, the, the reason that is is because what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's quoting Old Testament texts. And in this passage that we'll look at this morning, he's quoting seven different Old Testament texts. And in the first three verses that we just read, he, he quotes three. Psalm 2-7, 2 Samuel 7-14, and Psalm 97-7. And the reason he's doing that is because he's trying to appeal to these Christians who used to be Jews and he's trying to appeal and, and remind them and convince them that this Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is God. He is the son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And he's doing that by appealing to texts that they weren't just familiar with. They would have been familiar with these texts growing up in synagogue. Uh, but these were divinely authoritative texts. When, when, when the writer of Hebrews quotes these words, he's appealing to the very words of God. And his primary point in this entire passage is to show the superiority of Jesus in all things. But he does it by comparing Jesus to something. What is he comparing Jesus to? Look at there. Angels, right? He's comparing Jesus to angels. Three times in those first three verses, angels are mentioned. And in the entire passage that we're going to be looking at, eight times. And so we have to answer the question, why angels? Why are angels so important that the writer of Hebrews is gonna spend this chunk of scripture comparing Jesus to them? I think in order to get at the answer, why angels, we need to know two things. We need to know, first of all, what does God's word say about angels? And secondly, what did this first century group of believers and, and Jews believe about angels? 
I think it's important for us to, to, to think about these things because many of us have def- different thoughts and beliefs about angels. Some of us believe we have these guardian angels that watch over us and that when we have breakfast, we can talk with our angels and other people don't think about angels at all and, and we're not aware that there are these supernatural, powerful beings that, that we can't see that are affecting the reality around us. And so what does God's word say about angels? Well, well first of all, God's word highly, highly, highly esteems angels. They are mentioned in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible. They're mentioned 108 times in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament. We see in the book of Job that at some point before Genesis 1-1, God created all the angels. And so when you die, you don't go to heaven and become an angel and get a harp and wings. God created all of them at one point in time, and we also see around that same time frame, a group of those angels fell, and we call those angels demons. Angels are smart, they're, they're powerful, they're spiritual beings, they're not physical beings, but listen, they're not omnipresent, they're not omniscient, they're not omnipotent, which is to say they're not present everywhere. A single angel is only present in its current location. An angel doesn't know all things. It doesn't know what you're thinking. An angel doesn't hold all power. Those things can only be said of God. And God created all of the angels and he created them for a very simple purpose. He created them to worship him and to obey him. Psalm 103, 20 and 21 says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. And throughout God's word, when we see angels show up, they're doing one of those two things. They're either worshiping God or or, or they're fulfilling his will. We see angels, they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We see angels ministering to Jesus after he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted in the wilderness. Angels are extremely important. They are highly esteemed in God's word, and not just that. In first century Jewish thought, they believed that angels played an integral role in in the um, uh, mediation of of God's law uh, from God to Moses at Mount Sinai. And that was really important to them because up until this point, uh, God's law as given to Moses at Mount Sinai was the clearest revelation of the nature and character of God up until this point. And so angels would have been highly esteemed in this community, and rightly so. But listen, when Jesus showed up on the scene, everything changed because he, when he arrived, the word made flesh became the clearest picture of the nature and character of God. We, we see here in Hebrews that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And look again at verse four. Verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is why Jesus is more superior than angels because his name is more superior. And what's the name that the writer of Hebrews is referring to here? Is it his name Jesus? No, it's not. Look at verse five. Verse five says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Do you see it there? What's the name that he's talking about here? Son. Jesus is the son of God and we sing about that and we talk about that and we know that Jesus is the son of God and and, and listen, here's what he's getting at by saying that this is the title, this is the name that Jesus has. This is Jesus' superior name that he's talking about, son of God. 
What's so important about this name? Well, here's a few things that this name isn't communicating right now. It's not communicating that Jesus at one point in time became the actual son of God, that he was born as a human and did some great things and was elevated to this sort of demigod status. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was not created. He is God. He was eternally preexistent with God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity past, and he enjoyed the status as the sort of son of God. But listen, here's what he's getting at here. What he's communicating is that Jesus went from the son of God in humiliation, living on earth in shame and in weakness, to being the son of God in exaltation, walking into heaven, ascending into heaven, rightly receiving his inheritance and his glory and his riches and his title, the royal title of son of God. And you see that word beget in there and you're like, what does that mean Jesus was created at some point? Because when I read the Old Testament and I get to those genealogies that are really long and boring and I usually skip over them, it's like so-and-so beget so-and-so and so-and-so beget so-and-so. But what's interesting is when a king in ancient Israel attained his throne, that was called the day of his begetting. And that's what this is referring to here, that, that Jesus now because of his finished work on the cross, rising again from the dead, ascending into heaven, he receives this royal title of son of God, and this name of his is more superior. The name was so important, the name is so significant. We all have names, right? My name's Ryan, and it's not that important. I'm named Ryan because my mom just liked the name Ryan. And maybe your name has some significance because you're named after your father or your grandfather or your grandmother. In the Old Testament, names had deep significance. It oftentimes pointed to who they were or who they were to become. But for God, names had even deeper significance. The name of God wasn't just his title. There's not something mystical or magical about the name of God. But, but for the, the name of God points to something deeper about his nature and his character and who he is. And so when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' name is more superior than the angels. The author is saying that Jesus is not just some powerful angel, which many of the people who were reading this might have thought because they weren't seeing Jesus rightly, they weren't seeing Jesus clearly. He's saying that Jesus' nature and character is superior to angels and obviously because Jesus is God. He is the son of God. And so what's the natural response to Jesus and his great name? Look at verse six. Verse six says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The natural and right response to who Jesus is as the son of God is to worship him. The angels wouldn't be worshiping another angel. Who are angels com uh, commanded to worship? We just talked about this. They're commanded to worship God, but who are they worshiping here? They're worshiping Jesus because Jesus is God. He is the son of God and his name shows us that. It points to his nature and his character. It is more superior. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in worship because he has the greatest name. Let's keep going, look at verse seven. Of the angels, he says he, that's Jesus there, makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son of God, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Here's the second reality we must see about Jesus if we are to see Jesus clearly. It's this. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in authority because he has the greatest power. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in authority because Jesus has the greatest power. A, a clear vision and understanding of Jesus sees Jesus as the one who has all control. Jesus controls everything. Jesus has authority over everything because Jesus' power is greater than anyone or anything else. In essence, what this is communicating is that Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the boss. He is your boss. He is my boss. Who's the boss? Jesus is the boss, not Tony Danza. Jesus is the boss. That's a bad joke that's lost on anyone under the age of 30. <laughs> the um, author cites a bunch of Old Testament passages again here, Psalm 104, 4, Psalm 45, 6, and 7, and Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And his purpose in citing these is not to show the greatness of his name, which he did in that last section. He's, he's showing the greatness of Jesus' power. And he does that in three ways here. First of all, he shows the greatness of Jesus' power in his um, authority over the angels. Look at verse seven again. He, that's Jesus, makes, the, makes his angels winds. Jesus created the angels and he has authority over the angels and he directs what the angels do and where they go. Jesus has authority. Not only is Jesus not an angel, Jesus has authority over the angels because he created the angels. He is the boss of angels. Jesus' power is shown this way. It's also shown here in this passage in his rule and his reign in his kingdom. You know, every other king and queen that like ascends to their throne, they get to their throne and they rule for a while and they either die or someone kicks them out of the throne. That's how every single ruler reigns, except not Jesus. Jesus reigns forever and ever. Verse eight, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And this is a messianic psalm written by David, Psalm 45. And, and it's about a future ruler, king in the line of David, which can only be true about Jesus because every other king who came in the line of David has come and gone. They've ascended to the throne and they've died and they are no more except not Jesus. He reigns forever and ever. And of this king, David calls him God. And again, that can only be true of Jesus. And so not only do we see Jesus' authority and his power in his rule over angels because he created them and his eternal rule over his kingdom, we see Jesus' power in his role in creation. Look at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. We see his power in, in how he built this world that we live in, and not just that, his power is shown in how he's going to outlast it all. Look at verse 11. They will perish, but you, Jesus, will remain. I think we can stop and like try to think about how awesome that is, and we, don't really, we can't really comprehend how awesome that is, Jesus and his role in creation, until we understand the awesomeness of creation. And I think the older I get, the, the more I understand how awesome creation really is. 
You know, you stand at the edge of like a big body of water and you're kind of blown away by how small you are. You know, you stand on the edge of Lake Michigan and you feel that, and Lake Michigan is so much smaller than an ocean. You stand at a foot of a mountain range or at the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been there, and the vastness and the greatness of it. And not just this world that, that, that we live in, but, but think about the vastness of, of the universe. Have you ever stopped to think about it? You know, things are so far apart in the universe that they don't measure things in terms of miles, that they measure things in terms of, of, of light years. You know how far a light year is? It's really stinking far. Like, like light travels in one second. you know how far light travels in one second? 186,000 miles in one second. So multiply that by 60, and then 60 again, and then 24, and then 365. That's a light year. It's a, it's a big number. The closest star system to our solar system is Alpha Centauri, and that's 4.4 light years away. And stay with me here, because I've got a point for all of this. 4.4 light years away. In the late 1970s, uh, NASA launched a space probe called the Voyager. And it's careening through space right now at a zippy 36,000 miles per hour. That's pretty fast, right? 36,000 miles per hour. Do you know how long it will take for that space probe to get to the closest star, Alpha Centauri? You know how long it'll take? 70,000 years. 70,000 years, and that is the closest star. I don't know if you've been outside before and looked at the sky at night. There's a lot of stars, right? That's the closest one. And listen, I say all that to say, Jesus holds all of that in his hand. He holds all of creation together. He created all of that. Think about the greatest thing you can create. Like for me, it's a grilled cheese sandwich. Like. We think we're so awesome, but we're not. Compared to Jesus, we are nothing. Jesus' power is so much greater than your power. He is in control. We are not the boss. Jesus is the boss. And I don't see Jesus clearly until I see him as superior in authority in my life because he has the greatest power. Let's keep going. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here's the last reality I want us to see about Jesus. It's this. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in position because he has the greatest victory. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in position because he has the greatest victory. A clear vision and understanding of Jesus involves seeing him as, as, as higher than myself, in the highest position, the greatest status, because his achievement, his triumph, his victory is, is better than, than anything I've ever done. And so again, he, he goes back, the writer of Hebrews goes back to comparing Jesus to, to angels. And he asked that question, to, to which of the angels did he ever say? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer to this question is none, angels. To none angels has he ever said this, and, and what does he say? He quotes Psalm 110, one here. 
He says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Notice a couple things about the position of Jesus right here. First of all, notice that he's, he's not standing, he's, he's sitting. Why is Jesus sitting? Jesus is sitting because his work is done. His work is finished. It is complete. He is not scurrying about, hustling, trying to get the last few things on his to-do list done, breaking a sweat. That's not Jesus. Jesus is done, and he is sitting. And notice where he's sitting. He's sitting at the right hand of God. What's the importance of that? When I think of sitting at the right hand of God, I think of James and John in Mark 10, and, and they were pestering Jesus about sitting at his right and left hand in glory. Why did they want that? Well, when you sat next to the right hand of someone, it, it meant that you were identified with that person's prestige, with their privileges, with their position, and they wanted those things, even though up until that point, they'd done nothing to deserve it. And yet here's Jesus, and God is inviting him into that position at his right hand because he is God of very God. He is worthy of that position. And not only is Jesus sitting, not only is he sitting at the right hand of God, notice how he's sitting. Do you see how he's sitting? Do you notice where his feet are? Jesus is sitting with his feet up on a footstool. Do you know what a footstool is? It's a stool for your feet. <laughs> you can Google it if you don't know what it is. It's a, his feet are up. There's no better way to sit than with your feet up, right? Like if I'm at my house and I'm on my couch, my feet are on my coffee table because that's the only way to sit when you're really relaxing. And here's Jesus and he's sitting at the right hand of God and his feet are on a footstool and this is not some crummy footstool that God got at Ikea and it's made of balsa wood. <laughs> this footstool is made of his enemies. And just in case you didn't believe that Jesus is a boss, his feet are on his enemies. You know who his enemies are? Sin and death. And in every one and everything that would align themselves with that kingdom, Jesus has got his feet on them. How did he earn that position? He earned that position through his victory. And what is his victory? We briefly see it in verse three. Go back there real quick. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His victory is this purification of sins. And how did Jesus make this purification of sins, which, which lest it's lost on any of you right now, is Jesus meeting your greatest need. He made purification for sins. And how did he do that? Well, remember, he was in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity past, and he enjoyed the splendor and, and, and joy and bliss of that, and yet, even though he enjoyed all of that, he became like us, fully God and fully man, and, and he walked this earth and endured shame and suffering, but, but listen, he did what none of us could do, and he lived the life that God wants all of us to live, but we just simply can't because we're sinful. Jesus did that. And what's the right consequence for someone who does that? Well, they should enjoy the, the splendor and presence of God forever and ever. But what's, what was the consequence that, that, that Jesus had to face? Sinful humanity hated him. And so they killed him. 
And he suffered the most horrific, horrendous death imaginable. And I wonder if for those few days that that Jesus was in the grave, did death think that it had earned the victory? Did it think that it got the W, that that it won, that it had wrapped its arms around Jesus, this one who professed to be the son of God, just like every other man and woman that came before him? Was death shocked? Was it surprised as Jesus pried its cold, dead fingers off of his body and he rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all and defeating it for all of mankind, for everyone who would profess that he is Lord and Savior of their lives? And then Jesus ascended into heaven and he walked into that heavenly royal court celebrated by every saint and angel as the victor. Do you understand that's the victory Jesus won? That's the victory that Jesus won in order to earn this position that he has right now, seated at the right hand of God with his feet up on this footstool made of his enemies. I see Jesus clearly when I see him as superior in position because he has the greatest victory, when I see him as superior in authority because he has the greatest power, and superior in worship because he has the greatest name. We have to see Jesus this way. This is, listen, this is how you were designed to see this Jesus. But, 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 but just like those, those people who, who put Jesus to death, our rebel hearts revolt against this view of Jesus. We do not want to see Jesus this way. Our sinful nature wants what Jesus has. We want to be in the position that Jesus is in. We want the focus to be on ourselves. I want to be honest with you for for a moment. When I heard I was preaching this passage, uh, I wasn't thrilled. I've preached enough times now to, to, to sort of know and be able to look at a passage and be like, that one's going to be really easy to preach. And it's, it's, it's going to make sense, and, and I get it. And then other times you look at a passage and you're like, no, like that one's going to be tough, and I think I'm going to be out of town that weekend. <laughs> this one was the latter, and I can't tell you initially why I felt that way, only that I read through it and I was like, okay. And it was just sort of instinctual, and it wasn't until reading through it multiple times, studying it, praying about it, talking about it with other people, that I realized the reason I didn't want to preach this passage and go through this passage today was because of one simple reason. I'm a sinner, and I'm not mentioned in this passage once. And listen, neither are you. I don't mean to cause offense in this moment, but I don't think you're much different than me. Think about the passages of Scripture that we do memorize, that we do cling to. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those that love him. Do you notice a common theme in all those verses? We're right there, the center. And listen, those are powerful verses, and those are good verses, and those are verses I think we should hold on to because they are promises that are powerful in our lives. Listen, have you ever read a portion of scripture and you read through it and you're like, that's cool, that's great, but I don't get what that means for me. And what I want to do is I want to challenge all of us right now in this moment 
that when we get to something like that, that we would stop and we'd ask ourselves, why do I feel this way about this? Because honestly, even as I was preaching through those things about Jesus, I could sense that some of you were already checking out because you're like, where am I in the story? Remember last week's big idea? Let me refresh your memory. It's this. Jesus sits at the center of all reality and has to be the star of our show. I love that, but but who do we want to be the star of our show? You're gonna say the answer right now. Say it. Me. Not me, literally, but you know, you. You, me. That's who we want to be the star of our show. That's who we want the focus on. We want the focus on ourselves. Our fight for focus hinges on how we see Jesus, and we must see him clearly, because if we don't see him clearly, we have no hope, no hope in in maintaining focus in our faith here and now. I just want to leave you with one last warning before we go. It's this. I choose chaos when I choose to focus on myself. I choose chaos for my life when I choose to focus on myself. Remember what I said at the beginning, that like the chaos in our lives, it, it, it comes because we, we put the focus on ourselves and, and, and we lose um, our ability to see clearly spiritually. And that's because, listen, listen here, this is, this is what we want. We want to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Listen, listen. Jesus is superior in worship, authority, and position. Do you know what our sinful hearts want? Our sinful hearts want the worship. Our sinful hearts want, 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 want the authority. And in our sinful hearts, they, they want the position. You will never, ever attain those things. And your pursuit of those things will crush you. It will destroy you. It will lead to chaos in your life. Here's what we were designed for. And this is what ultimately leads to not just focus and faith, but contentment and joy and peace and life. We were designed to join with the angels and worship the one true son of God. We were designed to submit to the authority of the one true king whose whose kingdom uh, uh, goes on forever and ever and ever. And we were designed to humble ourselves to the lamb of God who made purification for sins because he holds the highest status, the highest position. Listen, there is no one like Jesus and he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And our focus in our faith hinges on seeing him clearly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when it's difficult, even when we have trouble understanding what you would have for us in it, that your Holy Spirit works and moves in power and speaks through it to us in clarity. And God, I pray right now that your spirit would do what what only he can do in this moment. And that is soften our hearts and open our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. Superior in worship. Superior in authority and control and superior in position? Or would you help us to see these truths impact the way we live, impact our lifestyles, impact the way we love other people, impact the way we love you and serve you and give of ourselves for you? 
We are so thankful for you, Jesus, because you do have the greatest name. You do have the greatest power and you do have the greatest victory. And we thank you for that victory. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, that we are able to see you clearly because of your work in our lives. And we pray that you would continue to do that work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.